CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles, where we get to know people with the experience and insight that can help us better understand our world and maybe ourselves. Today, the head coach of the Coastal Carolina University football team. It won't matter if you've never heard of the team once you hear how Joe Moglia got there. My dad's number one mission in life was to provide for his family. And the only thing he knew really was the fruit business. And he was an incredibly hard worker. And from the time I was 10, I was expected to work with him in the fruit store. There were times when Joe was on a terrible track. I probably started drinking when I was about 11. But drinking didn't last. Joe did well in college, spent many years coaching college football, all the time hoping to get the top job. But with a big family, he couldn't afford to wait. So he aimed for the world of finance. And I realized I couldn't compete with those people academically. I said, but most of those were in their late 20s. They had incredible academic resumes, probably belonged to the right clubs, all of those things. Well, I had none of that. I just didn't bring the pedigree. Joe also had a handicap, which could be devastating in a field where communication is key. What's happened is over the span of now multiple decades, I have worked so hard at it, I am good at controlling it. On this edition of CNN Profiles, how Joe Moglia rose to the top of the corporate world and then realized his old dream of becoming the coach of a college football team, the head coach. There's so many places we can start, Joe, but the first question I have to ask you is everybody refers to you as a billionaire. Are they rounding up? (laughs) I think, Michael, the reason why they refer to me as a billionaire is because there was an article written, I think, in the uh, Sports Illustrated a few years ago that talked about the job that I had done at Ameritrade, where when I first got to Ameritrade, our market cap was worth $700 million. By the time I stepped down as CEO in 2008, it was $10 billion. So we took the firm from $700 million to $10 billion. I am no, not even close to being a billionaire. So is it too personal for me, for me to ask you, uh, roughly speaking, how much do you think you're worth? Yeah, I think, you know what, it's not that it's too personal. It embarrasses me a little bit. Uh, But is it fair to say that I'm not anywhere near, not even close to a billionaire? But uh, one of the good things that takes place on Wall Street, when you do a good job, you get amply rewarded financially. And that's certainly been the case with me. Well, I just want to tell you here on CNN Profiles, if you told me you were only worth $100 we would still interview you. Well, sounds good. So therefore, we got to be in a ballpark someplace then. Someplace. Okay. So your your team, we're, we're going to let people know that your team is doing pretty well right now, but, but we're going to get to that in a moment. I really want you to start with your upbringing because the fact that you have wound up where you've wound up from your upbringing is pretty amazing. Uh, I, I think to begin with, I think you got to begin with my parents, Michael. And uh, my dad was born in Italy. He moved to the country when he was 11. In fact, he grew up in the Bronx in the same neighborhood that where they filmed The Bronx Tale with Robert De Niro. And uh, uh, he, my dad never finished eighth grade, and he sold bananas and apples in a fruit store his entire career. Um, my mom was born in Ireland, actually met my dad after World War II, came to this country in her 20s to marry him. She never graduated from high school. So so I was the oldest of five kids. Uh, the seven of us wound up growing up in the Dykeman Street section of Manhattan, which, which, which is a tough inner city neighborhood. Two of my very best friends growing up were killed in high school. One died of a drug overdose. The other was killed by the police robbing a liquor store. Had I not been playing high school football at Fordham Prep in the Bronx, I probably would have been with the guy robbing the liquor store. So my goal was to play football and baseball in college. 
and instead I wind up getting married. I had a family. There was no incremental money. I wound up giving up sports. I wind up going to Fordham. And my freshman year, I drove a New York City taxi cab, a truck for the post office, and worked in my dad's store. It was the first year of my life that I didn't have sports. So I, I decided if I could get a coaching job uh, and be able to get paid for that, that would kind of help a little bit. So my sophomore, junior, and senior year in college, I coached high school at Fordham. I coached high school football, Fordham Prep, and the rest of the time, I worked in my dad's store. And I majored in economics. I always had an interest in business. Thought I wanted to go to Wall Street, but I truly loved the coaching. So I decided upon graduation, if I could get a head high school job, uh, I'd want to pursue that. At 22, I'm the youngest football coach in the history of the state of Delaware. I wind up coaching for 16 years. Uh, my last job, I was defensive coordinator at Dartmouth. We won two Ivy League championships when I was there. That same girl that I married when I was 19, my first year at Dartmouth, uh, we're now in our early 30s. We are going through a divorce. I can't afford to live on my own and support my wife and children, so I get permission to move into a storage room above the football office at Dartmouth. The only problem with that, I didn't mind it being small, but it had no heat, and this is in New Hampshire. So I could see my breath in the wintertime, and I wound up living there two years. In January 1984, Coach Joe Moglia gets the call of his life. The national championship team in Miami wants him to be their new head coach. In January 84, Miami upset Nebraska for the national championship. That would have been an incredible opportunity to coach for our national champion. But it hit me that I'm going to be living in Carl Gables. My kids are still going to be living in New Hampshire. A football coach during the season works seven days a week, 80 hours a week. Especially back then, you didn't make much money. I can't afford to, for, uh, I can't afford to fly the kids back and forth. And frankly, I'm never going to be able to see them. And I didn't think I could do my job as a coach if I couldn't live up to my responsibility as a father. And probably the toughest career decision I've ever had to make was turning down that job because it told me I had to get out of football. But that was what I did. In a few minutes, how Moglia moved out of football and made his fortune. But before we get to that, I still want to take you back to your father because it sounded like he was an incredibly hard worker. And if you got anything out of him, it was the work ethic. Tell me a little bit about what life was like growing up with your father. Well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I think my, my dad's number one mission in life was to provide for his family. And the only thing he knew really was the fruit business. And he was an incredibly hard worker. Uh, you know, seven of us lived in a two-bathroom, one-bedroom apartment. And from the time I was 10, I was expected to work with him in the fruit store. And, and now reading a book that's been uh, recently published about you by Monty Burke, Fourth and Goal, I get the sense that your father, at least from your brother's uh, 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 explanation, I get the sense that your father was a frustrated guy and angry in many ways, right? Yeah, you know, I just, I, I, when, when, when my, my brother kind of referenced my dad like that, I'm not sure I'd say the exact same thing. I think, I think when you think about my parents, my mom always had a smile on her face. The glass was always half full. She was optimistic and happy. My dad was a little bit more of a pessimist. I think his glass was always half empty. And I think, frankly, the fact that he worked so hard his entire life, my dad had no hobbies. So the only day we almost never took a vacation. If he took one week off a year, it wasn't like we were going to go anyplace. It's just that he didn't go into the store that week. And then it's still going by the end of the week. Uh, so he never had anything where he could just relax and wind down. The other thing, too, my dad ultimately became an alcoholic. And uh, so I, I think I think 
that I think that that the stress and the tension of never having a hobby, not really ever having time off, year in and year out, 75 hours a week, I think just kind of got to him over time. And I wouldn't say he was angry, but he was more he was more glass half empty. Gotcha. And and you clearly are a guy who's more glass half full, or or is it more than half full? No, no. I think you know. I I think it's definitely at least half full, if not more, but I also, I think I'm very pragmatic, and, and I understand I live in a very real world. I understand that I'm by no means pie in the sky, but most of the time, I always think that, you know, a setback is an opportunity to be able to address a challenge. It's an opportunity to be able to overcome something. There's always, uh, there may not always be, but oftentimes there's, there's a way to solve a problem, and I will look at those things that way. So let's talk about setbacks, because Boy, when you were a young kid, according to this book that's been written about you, uh, you had a lot of setbacks. You were, a, can I call you a hoodlum? You know, I don't know if it goes far as saying I was a hoodlum, but like we did a lot of things like in terms of it's we grew up in kind of gangs, but they weren't the gangs that you kind of read about in L.A. where everybody's shooting each other. They were just gangs where you often got in a fight. You know, you would steal things from stores. You would do things that you weren't supposed to do. Uh, it wasn't, quotes evil, and people weren't necessarily getting killed. But it was a tough inner city neighborhood. It wasn't uncommon to have a fight a week, and it wasn't uncommon to steal something from a store. And I've, I've read that uh, it wasn't uncommon to, to do a bit of drinking when you were really young, right? You know, I think that's fair, too. I probably started drinking when I was about 11. When I was 12, I worked full-time during the summertime, which, you know, for my dad, that was about 12, 13 hours a day, six days a week. And during the school year, if I weren't involved, like, in, you know, as a later grammar school, if I wasn't involved with sports, I was expected to certainly be there on the weekend. In high school, I was there on Saturdays unless I was involved with sports. And, like, in the springtime, if my dad was busy and if I, if I needed to go there, I'd go there after baseball practice. I think the thing that I probably learned the most from him uh, Mike was that you know growing up my dad was unhappy you know and and I think he'd get into a bad mood when things weren't perfect in the store and one of the things I realized probably from the time I was 15 on how important it was to do something that you enjoy doing I couldn't imagine I could always imagine working hard I got that work ethic from my dad and I could always imagine giving it your best shot but I could not imagine doing it in an environment that you didn't want to be in and that was a great lesson I got from my father because that had a huge impact on my entire life. If you're going to do something, do something you care about, do something you love, do something you can be passionate about so you can truly go after it. I learned that from my father. And just bef you know, before you got on that right track, there was, again, one story from this uh, really wonderful read from Monty Burke uh, where he talks about that that sort of little trick that you guys pulled, you and your buddies, when you were going out to the beach on a school trip and you wanted to bring some alcohol with you, you got to tell yeah. us that story. Yeah, and that was a little trick. That was one of the real heartaches of my life back then. And, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, I learned from that over time. And that is, again, we were drinking from the time we were 11, 10, 11, 12 years old. And um, every once a year, we would have a one-day trip to Rye Beach, which was about probably 45-minute-hour bus ride outside the city. It was just an amusement park. And uh, so we thought we were going, and we thought it'd be cool if we uh, if we brought some booze along with us. And uh, we had the idea that rather than they might suspect the boys are doing that, they never suspect the girls. I got the job of bringing in the booze and giving it to the girls and asked them to bring it bring it to, to Rye Beach with us. Well, sh sure enough, we wind up, they get caught, we get caught, I get caught, etc. And the the people that had gotten caught, the girls with the booze, and... 
the guys that kind of got actually got into trouble, we weren't allowed to graduate. And the thing that scared me to death was I was going to go to Fordham Prep. And that was very, very important to my mom. It was all boys Catholic school in the Bronx. It kind of was getting me out of my neighborhood. I think it's kind of funny to say you're getting out of your neighborhood so you can go to school in the Bronx. But all those things were very, very real. And I was petrified that the school would tell Fordham Prep and Fordham Prep would tell me I wasn't allowed to go. And the fact that I did this... You know, I broke my mother's heart. My father was very, very disappointed. And I remember for, at that point in my life, and I think even looking back, if you said pick the three or four things that were the most traumatic things in your life, I would pick that one as one of them. You're listening to CNN Profiles. Our guest is Joe Moglia, currently head coach of Coastal Carolina University. Remember a few minutes ago when Moglia told us he turned down his dream job as head coach in Miami because he needed more money to support his children. Here's how he did it. Joe spent an entire year thinking about the skill set he had, what he might be qualified to do next, and most importantly, what he would be passionate about doing. He would aim for the world of finance. And I would cold call them and have a one-minute pitch to tell them about kind of what I was doing. I was thinking about going to Wall Street. What did they think? Could they help me out, et cetera? And that's how I kind of began that process. And I worked on that pretty, pretty aggressively any free time that I had. And eventually, I was given an opportunity at Merrill Lynch, and they put me in the 1984 MBA training program, and there were 26 of us, 25 MBAs and one football coach. And I'd say most of the people that weren't in the process of hiring me, probably thought this football guy's never going to make it. Was was part of your pitch, hey, I can translate what I've learned on the football field to business? That was exactly my pitch, Mike. It was kind of, I said, look, I, don't, I recognize that I don't know. At the time, for the institutional side of Wall Street, they only recruited the top 10 MBA programs in the country and, and could pretty much get the cream of the crop from those MBA programs. And I realized I couldn't compete with those people academically. I said, but most of those were in the late 20s. They had incredible academic resumes, uh, probably belonged to the right clubs, all of those things. Well, I had none of that. But by then, I had been a successful coach for 16 years. I mentioned I had written a book. I mentioned I authored articles in, uh, in, in coaching journals. I'd already had four kids. I put myself through school. I've already gone through a divorce. I can handle myself under stress. I was well-organized. I was a motivator. I was self-motivated. So at the end of the day, I, and I think this is what the man- management team at Merrill Lynch felt as well, I brought the qualities to the table that they were looking at and they were really looking very hard for, I just didn't bring the pedigree. So it says a lot for the company that they, that they ignored the pedigree. You know, there were two guys specifically that did that because most companies, most companies would make the decisions through the human resource department and the human resource department wasn't going to do anything that was particularly risky or outside the box. And a guy by the name of Mike Quinn and Bill O'Connor were the guys that really said, you know, we want this guy. And then they put me in that training program. And I, you know, it's a similar situation that I faced recently, and I'm not going to take you off topic, but kind of go, leaving the business world, going back to football. The understanding the risk-reward associated with it, the typical athletic director, the typical college president, kind of didn't want anything to do with a guy that sort of had a business background. And, yeah, he may have coached, but that was a long time ago. And that was similar back then as well. It really, it takes somebody that understands risk-reward, that understands people, that understands skill sets, and frankly recognizes that a lot of your personnel decisions, the better ones you make are the -the outside-the-box decisions. That's what happened at Merrill Lynch, and that's what happened, frankly, at Coastal. So you first, you're at Merrill Lynch, you didn't have the pedigree, a couple of guys took a shot on you, how did you do at Merrill Lynch? Uh, I, I did very, very well, and, uh, and I think I did have the maturity, I did have the skill sets 
that were needed to be successful in that field. I think I got most of that from, from growing up in the neighborhood that I grew up in, but I think most of that came from coaching. I've often said that I was a much better business guy because of my experience as a coach. So as a coach, to put this in perspective, like a typical college coach works seven days a week, about 80 hours a week, doesn't get a day off for four or five months, and his entire career is dependent upon whether or not he wins on Saturdays. And if he's going to move up in the profession, he's got to move his family around the country, worry about schools, money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's the life that I led, you know, for, for 16 years. Um, so, so I think, I think having gone through the stress you have as a coach, working with people, making decisions under pressure, you know, that, that was a very, very good training ground for me to go to Wall Street. Recruiting translates into sales. I began as an institutional bond salesman. All those things kind of set the stage for me on Wall Street. You know what occurs to me? You've been talking very fast. I understand everything you say. This is one of the most cogent stories I've ever heard. And I read that when you were younger, you were a stutterer. I am still a stutterer. And then once or twice through this conversation where I've had, if you heard me hesitate, it wasn't because I was hesitating. I was trying to get my breathing in check. And the biggest, the, the biggest drawback I think I had as a kid was no matter how tough neighborhood, it was a great neighborhood. No matter what was going on in my family, there was love in our family. Um, while we didn't have a lot of money, my father had a fruit store. We never had to worry about food or any of those things. But, but in grammar school and high school and in college, I would seldom raise my hand in class, even if I knew the answer, because I was afraid I wouldn't get my words out. And then when I decided to go to coaching, when I was in so a sophomore in college, I had to communicate. So I would practice in front of a mirror. And what I found was, one, it expanded my vocabulary. Secondly, the way I enunciated would help me get a word out. So, for example, I may not have been able to say the word enunciation, but I could say enunciation, and that actually made me a little bit more interest to listen to. But to this day, to this day, some of the biggest fears I have when I'm getting ready to do your show, if I'm getting ready to go on television, if I'm in front of a group that I don't know, I worry about, God like jumping out from behind a curtain, grabbing my larynx and my not being able to get my, my words out. That still is one of my biggest fears. What's happened is over the span of now multiple decades, I have worked so hard at it. I am good at controlling it. And every decade, I develop more confidence that I do have a message to, a message to share. I am well organized. I'm well prepared. Uh, and I've done it before. And I can do it again. And these people want me here talking to them. That's why I'm there. I guess you must have seen the movie The King's Speech. I did. What did you think? I thought it was a great movie. It was very emotional for me. There were so many times a stutterer knows what another stutterer is going through. And when he was going through those things, my brother also stuttered. My brother, I'm the oldest of five. My brother died last August. And he still stuttered till the day he died. And it breaks your heart. Joe Moglia has plowed through the stuttering challenge. He rose to the executive committee of Merrill Lynch. And then... An offer came to become CEO of Ameritrade, the online stock trading giant. He took it and led the company from a value of $700 million to $10 billion, a long, successful run. In 2008, Moglia decides it's time to move on. He gives up the CEO job, becomes chairman of the company, and then starts to dream again. I get a call from a guy by the name of Charlie Johnson, who's the CEO and the current chairman, uh, past CEO of, of Franklin, Frank Franklin Templeton on the West Coast, who was, who loved Yale, 
and he and a handful of his colleagues, alums from Yale, just gave me a call that summer. I'd gotten to be friends with Charlie over the years and, uh, and said that there was a possibility at the end of the 2008 season the head job at Yale might be open. Would I be interested? And I literally remember taking the phone, like taking it away from my ear and said, you know, Charlie, I said, you know I have a coach for like 20 years. And he said, I know that. He said, but I and others, we have spent some time looking at the skill sets and this is right up my alley anyway, that are required for a head football coach in college. Joe, you absolutely have those. The only issue has never happened before. So why don't you at least think about it? And what happened, Mike, I think over the span of the next several months, I realized I didn't lose one second of sleep on any of the other potential opportunities where I actually would have been in demand, but the one that I couldn't let go of was going back to coaching. One, my love of the game, but two, also the impact you're going to have on helping an 18- to 22-year-old boy become a man. And... Uh, the, the decision that I, that I ultimately made was the, the, one, the thing that I felt I would be best at, have the greatest impact on, get the greatest satisfaction from, and maybe a part of this was, maybe a little piece of it was unfinished business, was going back to football. The fact that it had never been done before, well, frankly, that hadn't stopped me in anything else I've ever done in my life. So we decided, let's give it a shot. Let's go after it. And uh, did you wind up at Yale? No, uh, Yale didn't even give me an interview. No interview at Yale but Moglia did get a job with the University of Nebraska football team, a volunteer job to get back in the game. So I was there with Nebraska in season probably 80 hours a week for two years. 80 hours a week unpaid for two years. Now, you didn't need the money, but 80 hours a week, that's a lot of work, and that was a way for you to get back in the game and familiarize yourself with what was going on. It wound up doing two things. One, it got the rust off. Secondly, it also it helped me, gave me a little time to actually evaluate my own hypothesis. One, do I really truly still have the skill sets? And two, is it something I'd really, really love doing? Let me ask you, you, and, were, you were how old at that point? Uh, 59. So, you know, people, you know, time becomes more and more valuable the older you get, right? I agree. A lot of people would not necessarily have had the patience to try something out for 80 hours a week for two years. Well, if I'm going to go back to football and it's never been done before and I'm going to need to get the rust off anywhere, I, anyway, I realized that that was part of the price that I would have to pay. And I, am ver I very much believe I will spend the rest of my career coaching football. But I didn't want to spend the rest of my career or the rest of my life trying to get a job. Uh, but I knew, I knew it wasn't just going to happen overnight unless I got very, very, very lucky. And I think in the beginning, I was probably viewed as a business guy that really wants to be associated with college sports. But when you look at my background, what happened is I think ultimately over time, I earned the respect of those around me and the people kind of watching what was going on. And they realized this is not a business guy going, trying to get his, you know, enjoying being, uh, being associated with college football. This is a coach who took a hiatus, actually did pretty well, and now he wants to go back to coaching. This is a legitimate coach here. Okay, and you got back to coaching. So now yes. here you are at Coastal Carolina University. What's your coaching philosophy, and, and how much has it been impacted by your business experience? Uh, I've always said, again, I was a better business guy because of my experience as a coach. I think I'm a much better head coach because of my experience as a business guy. The, the philosophy, our mission is simple, and that's we want to put a team on the field that all of Coastal Carolina, our alumni, faculty, et cetera, the community is going to be proud of. That means ultimately we certainly got to win, but it also means every every snap you're on the field, you give it everything you've got. And then that carries over 
to the type of behavior we're looking for from our coaching staff and players. The philosophy we have is this is about standing on your own two feet and accepting responsibility for yourself. Since all the guys we're dealing with are 18 to 22-year-old young men, it's about becoming a man. So be a man, B-A-M, BAM, is like all over the football offices and our campus, our practice facilities, etc. It's about putting a team on the field that your university is going to be proud of. It's also having a philosophy. We don't have many rules but we have that standard, which is incredibly high. Stand on your own two feet, accept responsibility for yourself, understand a man's got to live with the consequence of his actions. Well, if that's the definition, being a man is, is in many ways the same thing as being a woman, right? Oh, it is identical. It's the exact same thing. If, remember, I said the only reason why I say be a man is because it has to be football players. All of our football players and football coaches happen to be male. It's the exact same principle. If I were giving a talk, if I were giving a talk, this is about a boy becoming a man. It's about a girl becoming a woman. And it's about, it's the real true substance that great leaders are made out of. Do we understand what it means when you're smaller and you're responsible for cleaning up your room? Do you understand what it means later on when your buddies are going out but you've got homework to do? Do you understand what it means when you're by yourself and mom and dad are not around and somebody wants you to go drinking or somebody wants you to do drugs? Do you understand what it means in terms of a relationship with uh, a girlfriend or a boyfriend? Do, Do you understand what it means in terms of as you get older and you start to think about a career path and the responsibility you're going to have as a father or as a husband? And those are the things we kind of talk about. Now, did your, did your kids, I know a lot of parents are going to want to know this, did your kids just listen to you right away and do it, or did they give you a hard time and you just stuck with it? They didn't give me a hard time, but nor did they listen to that. I think like anybody, they hear what you say, but then it becomes concrete examples. And then there's always a consequence to your actions. And you know what? That takes a lot of energy, and you sound like a guy with boundless energy because you know what? Sometimes it's just... I know I feel it, boy, at the end of a long day, it, I am exhausted, and, to, and to, to talk that talk and enforce it takes a lot more energy. Did you ever get burned out? Yeah, I don't know if I've ever got burned out. I think what happens is I get tired, and I think one of the areas of my life, and I don't, th- there's nobody in my family that wouldn't say that I love them, and I'd be there if they needed me. I think it would also be fair if, if you talk to any one of my kids, if any one of them said, you know, the one problem we had with dad is that he really wasn't around that much, you know. And so I think what I did, what I get, understand better today, I didn't really understand it back then, was how you kind of need that balance in your life. And what happens is sometimes I think when you don't have energy, while I'd still be aware of the same principles, maybe I wouldn't have the same patience. So therefore I wouldn't explain it the same way. And then you lose the opportunity to be able to teach. So uh, by no stretch of the imagination am I suggesting that I was perfect in any of this, but it is something that I believe and I think any one of my kids or anybody that's been close to me in my life would, would validate that. So let me ask you how that, well, tell me about Coastal Carolina. How are you guys doing? I don't know much about your league. Tell me what league you're playing in, where are you, and what's happening this Saturday? We are in the Big South Conference, and uh, this is our first year together. So anytime you have a brand-new staff, uh, again, you, you learn. It's your first time working together. You have a new offense, defense, kicking system. The players don't don't particularly know you. By the way, our philosophy is standing up to feed yourself responsibility for yourselves. And I think what's happened is we've really, really kind of grown, I think, over the span of the span of the season. I think a lot of people thought we weren't going to – we had the toughest record, uh, toughest schedule in the history of the school. I think a lot of people probably thought we would have trouble having a winning schedule there's a good chance we might have a not winning schedule winning season a lot of people thought we might lose 
the bottom line is we have consistently gotten better. We did win the Big South uh, Conference Championship. We were invited to the National NCAA playoffs. The first round was last week. We won that game, and we are now in the second round of the playoffs, and we play against Old Dominion in Norfolk, Virginia this Saturday. Who's favorite to win? They are. By how much? I don't know. They don't usually do that for the FCS level schools, schools at our level to like Saturday. But, you know, a wild guess, three touchdowns. So, <laughs> but I don't know. So, so, what are, so what are you telling your guys? We're going to do the same thing that we've always done. At the end of the day, you want to be able to say that you came off the field and you gave your school and your family and your teammates everything you've got. And when you look in the mirror, you want to be able to say, you know what, I did my best. And it doesn't matter if we're underdogs or we're favored. It doesn't matter if we're in the playoffs or not. Your job is when you go out on the field, live up to your responsibility and give it your very, very best shot every second you're out there. Give me an example of something that can boost the psychology that you do intentionally of your own team. Well, you know what? I don't worry too much about their psychology because I really can't do much about us. For us, it's an incredible consistency, Mike, about about literally we will have this type of conversation every week. We will talk about it doesn't matter if we're home or away. It doesn't matter if it's a playoff game or not. It doesn't matter if we won a number of games in a row or lost a number of games in a row. This is truly about you going out in the field and whether regardless of the score, whether it's play one, play 30, play 60, play 80, your responsibility is to do everything you can in that particular play. Stay focused, stay poised, understand what you need to do and what you do by doing that you increase the probability that the outcome is going to be successful how do you recognize when somebody isn't giving it his all well it's it, the easy part is when somebody's not hustling but our guys always hustle so that's not something you would see the tough part is when he's not focused mentally because you can't tell, you don't understand why then he made a mistake. Or he wasn't quite in position because he wasn't quite as focused. And I think the really, really great coaches kind of understand that. And they're always working to make sure that you're doing everything you can. Not to be inside your guy's head, but helping him understand that he needs to have his mind focused in an effort to do the best job that he can. You can't always tell that. That's why we begin with his idea, standing your own to feet, accept responsibility for yourself. The We begin with... Everybody wants to be able to do that. Every one of our players wants to be a good football player. He wants to be a good student. He wants to be a good son. He wants to be a good brother. He wants to be a good boyfriend. You know, older people just kind of in the business world, they want to be good fathers. They want to be good employees. They want to be, 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 good, be good at what they do. That's what they want. So what we try to do is just emphasize that, that that's something that they got to take responsibility for yourself, and you try to create an environment that allows them to do that. I think the difference today between what I, the way I look at things today and what I looked at, let's say, 25 or 30 years ago, I think 25, 30 years ago, I thought everything was important. And I realized today not everything's important. Most things don't matter that much. So if you're really going to focus, you got to focus on the things that really, really do matter, and you got to get those right. Coach Moglia, thank you so much for this time, and uh, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you doing it. Mike, I very much appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Thanks very much. By the way, you can find CNN profiles on our website, cnn.com slash soundwaves, or download us from iTunes, or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.